First John, and uh, I'll be reading only verse 1 to 4 of the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which, have, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that, we may, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. Thank you that we have come to a time when we are going to hear from your word. Speak to us, O oh Father. Help us that we will seek to do your word, to put it in practice so that our lives will be lives of worship in a way which will be pleasing in your sight. Pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are starting a new series in this book, First John. And when it comes to choosing a book of the Bible to go through here at RBC, we always have in mind a purpose for doing so. We always consider the need of the church at a particular moment and decide to choose a book which you believe the Lord will use to meet that need. So in going through the book of Leviticus, for example, we trusted the Lord to help us understand the true worship of the Holy God. But you may wonder why are we starting a new series and yet we did not go through Leviticus to the end. It is because we believe that the purpose which we, have in, which we had in mind when we started Leviticus was achieved. And so at the moment we see that there's need for us as the local church at RBC to abound in love for God and love for one another. It's surely there's love among each other, but we desire that that love abounds more and more. That's why we have chosen to go through this episode, First John. Which, as you will see, is saturated with arguments and exhortations 
about loving one another. So it's our prayer and desire that the Lord will use it to stir us up to loving one another and to good works. The title of this book has always been First John. And it's the first and largest in a series of the three letters which were written by this very author. And although traditionally it is known as a later or an episode, it lacks the key distinguishing marks of a first century later. Which you see in other letters, especially the letters of St. Paul, where, for example, when he starts, he introduces himself by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And so in this letter, we don't have those introductory greetings. We don't even have the final greetings, which you again find in first century standard letters like those of Paul. However, although those features are not found in this episode, but still its tone and content makes it to fit under the category of letters or episodes. Because it shows that the writer had in mind a group of people, a particular group, which he was writing to. And so since the letter identifies no specific church or group of people or individual, to which it was sent, yeah, it's classification is under the general general episodes or the Catholic episodes. In the same category, other letters like that of James and Jude 4. So as you see very clearly, the episode does not identify its author. Directly, but however, the early church tradition strongly and consistently points to the Apostle John as the writer of this episode. The early church fathers like Irenaeus credit the letter to Apostle John. And when you go through the episode, you find that the language there is very similar to the language which John uses when he's writing the gospel. Even verse 4 here, which we, we read when he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, it's 
very similar to what he writes in, in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 15 and verse 11. Where our Lord Jesus Christ Himself used this very word, similar words of our, our joy, my joy may be complete, or your joy may be complete. And although, of course, even in the Gospel, John does not identify himself as a writer, but later he talks about himself as the disciple whom the Lord loved. And says it was this disciple who wrote the things, that's the Gospel, according to John. And let me show you some similarities which we we see in both the Gospel of John and this episode. Even at the beginning, the way these two books begin is very similar. Both begin by talking about Jesus Christ. Using same words like beginning, like here we, we read that, that which was in the beginning. Both use the words life, the word. Both use the word the words like life and then the word like the word. And it both uh, in, in both the the books John uses contrasts like life and death, truth and falsehood. Also, you find that the theme of to be born of God occurs repeatedly in both John the Gospel and this first later. Example here, what John writes here in First uh, John, sorry, in John the Gospel in chapter one and verse thirteen. He writes and says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in First John 3, 9, he writes and says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The theme of eternal life is again repeated over and over in both books. And even the use of the title Son or the Son of God to describe Jesus Christ, you see it occurring over and over in both the Gospel according to John and also the Epistle.
Ndani kuzesa yetu gambu mwana mwana wakatonda gabagaba Yesu Kristo mchilaba na kuzesa wangitao Yes this is to mention this is to mention to you a few similarities which point to the fact that it's very very possible that it's John the apostle who wrote this episode also as he wrote the gospel this was a beloved disciple who had sat under the feet of his master and learned so much from him and so you see even the language of which the lord used occurring in what he writes here to his fellow believers it is not very clear when the, this episode was written the exact date is not known however it is supposed that it was written in the latter part of the first century and as we have seen, since the language of the gospel according to John and this episode are similar, it is possible that this episode was written shortly after John wrote the gospel. In that latter part of the century, when he was an aged apostle, the, the only surviving apostle who was living in the city of Ephesus at that time. Also, the false teaching which John wrote against in this episode. For example, we know that in that later centuries, people came up teaching that Jesus Christ was not truly human. And so, since that teaching came up at that later part of the century, it's very possible that John wrote his episode at that time. In the in the early 90s, AD 90. So it's very clear that this episode was written to counteract those false teachings which were coming up. In the churches of Ephesus and the surrounding areas. That's why we read in, in this very episode, in chapter 2 and verse 26, when John writes and says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And it is interesting how throughout the episode he counteracts false teachings with truth. For example, you see that he warns his readers against walking in darkness. By telling them that they as Christians they should be walking in light. 
And that would confirm that they have fellowship with God and with each other. Because this shows to us that it's, it's helpful, it's not only helpful to be warned about these false teachings, it's yes, to be important to be warned about the false teachings as, at the same time as we are being pointed to the truth of God's word. Because when you are exposed to the truth and you are familiar with it, to be very easy for you to discern false teaching when you come across it. So it's so, so important for you as a believer to have a firm grasp of God's truth. So that you'll be able to discern falsehood and avoid it. If you are not caring to be rooted in the truth of God's word, you'll be easily drawn away by every wind of doctrine. And interestingly, sometimes false teachings come in a way that they almost look like or sound like truth. But if you are rooted in the truth of God's word, you'll be able to discern even those false teachings which seem to look like the truth. And so in an effort to counteract these false teachings, in this episode, John covers a number of things. Although some of them, he comes back to them over and over again, as we will see. He's repeating them, but giving some explanation or other arguments to trace the point. However, you find that directly he notes down a number of reasons why he wrote this episode. In, in chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that it says, So that our joy may be complete. I believe this is related to assurance. I'm saying I'm writing these things to you so that you may be assured of your salvation and that you may have joy and our joy also may be complete. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he, he says, I write to you so that you may not sin. And I believe here he means that I'm writing to stir up you to good works, to hate sin, and to seek righteousness. 
and all that this may be the same result as we go through this episode that we may hate sin and seek holiness as we go through this episode. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you because, chapter 2 and verse 12, says, because your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake, that's Jesus' sake. I think this, again, I believe, is, is saying, I'm writing to give you assurance. I'm writing to help you not to go into despair because of the remaining sin in you. But rather to know that all your sins have been forgiven. Yes, as a Christian, it is very, very important to know that all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. That, that, that should be a source of encouragement and hope. But of course, that should not make you say, well, if they are forgiven, all my sins are forgiven, then let me live the way I want. That will actually cause people to question your salvation in the first place. He also says, I'm writing to you because you know God. That's in First John chapter two and verse thirteen. And I think again this is related to assurance. Knowing God as their Father, sure should give them assurance, should give us as believers assurance. In the same chapter, chapter 2 and verse 13, B, he says, I write to you because you have overcome the evil one. Also, he said, because you know the Father. Father, he says, because I write to you, because the word of God abides in you and you are strong. Another reason which he gives in verse 20, 21 of chapter 2 is because you know the truth. I'm writing to you because you know the truth. And of course, that shows that although they knew the truth, they needed him to write to them. It has a reminder of that truth, or as an exhortation to hold firm to 
the truth they know. Yes, that's why we all need to hear the truth again and again and be reminded because many times we forget the truth. It's very, very important to be reminded to hold firm to the truth which we know. Especially in times when false teachings are commonplace even today. It's very, very important to hold fast to the truth. But also very importantly, he shows that he's writing to Christians. To assure them of eternal life. This is what he, he says in chapter 5, uh, chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, this confirms that he is writing to Christians, these people who have already believed in Jesus Christ, and he's writing to tell them that you have eternal life. It's a bit different from what he said in the gospel where he, he wrote and said, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have eternal life through his name. Yes, so it shows that in the gospel, he had in mind the non-believers as well. But in this episode, he was writing to believers to help them have a firm assurance in Jesus Christ. And so if you are true if you're a true believer and maybe you're struggling with assurance yes take time and study this gospel this this later prayerfully and surely the Lord will use it to strengthen your assurance in him and you find that this letter is also helpful in helping you examine your life to be sure that you're in the faith. But for those of you who are still in your sins, apart from the warnings which you find in this episode, Many of the things written here do not concern you. 
For you need to first take seriously what John writes in the gospel. Then repent and trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Before you find what is written in this episode of great importance. Let us now see the outline of this episode of 1 John. It is one of the books of the Bible which are very difficult to outline. Especially because of the theme being repeated over and over again. You find that many people outline it very differently. But I believe the overarching theme of this episode is having fellowship with each other, fellow believers, but also with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so here he was writing to show us, or to show what it means to have fellowship, what the tests which you can test yourself with to to, to test whether you have that fellowship with each other, with fellow believers, and with God. And first and foremost, it starts with an introduction about the truth, about the word of life, the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. And that's what we we see from verse one to verse four. And so what I've done with the rest is to to group uh, this text into the kinds of tests of having fellowship with fellow believers and and with God. So the first kind of those tests uh, run from chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2 and verse 2. Where in from verse 5 to 7 we see walking in the light as a test of having fellowship with fellow believers and with God. That she is showing that if you are walking in darkness, then you are not having fellowship with God. However much you may be claiming to be a believer, but if you are walking in darkness, you are not a believer. And then from verse 8 to 10, we see that acknowledging and confessing sin 
is again a test which proves that you have fellowship with God and with fellow believers. Yes, showing that a true believer does not claim that he is sinless. Yes, he acknowledges that there is remaining sin in him or her. And again and again confesses that sin while trusting God, the Holy Spirit, to cleanse him from the remaining sin in him or her. But also, verse, uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, we see that the other test of having fellowship with God and better believers is trusting Jesus Christ as our advocate and propitiation for our sins. The second kind of test uh, running from verse 3 of chapter 2 to verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 3 to 6, we see that keeping God's commandments is a sign or it proves that you have fellowship with him, that you abide in him. And also in from verse 7 to 11 of chapter 2, so we see that loving brethren is a sign of walking in the light. And hence it shows that you are having fellowship with God and these people if you are walking in the light and loving brethren. And we see that the, the other test of having fellowship with God is knowing God and overcoming the evil one. We see that from chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. And we see from chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, we see that hating the passing world and its desires is a sign, is a test that you have fellowship with God. Because John says that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So if you love the world, if you enjoy the pleasures of this world, then it shows that you are still of this world. You are not of God. You are not yet a believer. And so this should help us to test ourselves 
whether we are truly believers or we, we are just masqueraders, we are just deceiving ourselves. And the third kind of test of having fellowship with God and with these people uh, runs from chapter 2, verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 24. In verse 18 to 27 of chapter 2, we said, abiding in Christ and his word shows us that we are having fellowship with God and his people. Also having confidence of being God's children and the hope of the second coming of Christ shows that we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son and with his people. We see that in um, chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3 and verse 10. And another test of having fellowship is loving one another as a way of following Christ's example. Where he says, lay down your life for your brethren, the way Christ laid down his life for us. We see that in chapter 3, verse 11 to 18. And again, he repeats this theme when he says, uh, when we, we see that it's keeping God's commandments of believing in his son and loving fellow brethren is also another test of having fellowship with him. The fourth kind of those tests uh, run from chapter 4, uh, verse 1 to chapter 5 and verse 12. Where in chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, you see, testing the spirits to see whether they are from God is a sign that you are having fellowship with God and His people. Because in verse 1 of chapter 4, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many prophets have gone out in the world. And this is very, very important even for us today. So many false prophets are all over the place now. So many false teachers which have many, many followers, which have, which have so many followers. 
Cults like Fanero are all over and around us now. Where so many young people are flocking and thinking they're going to hear the truth of God's word. How much more important it is for us to test the spirits today, to see who is from God and who is not from God. Because whoever comes, comes claiming that he's from God, actually. So we are to test, we are to judge, to discern what is right, what's wrong, who is a true teacher, who is a false teacher. Yes, and a true Christian cares about that. It is a false Christian or a non-believer who just goes wherever he wants to, to go, even whatever, whatever is called a church, he, he goes there. In chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 5, we see loving one another as a sign that we love God, who Himself is love. Then also believing the testimony which God has borne concerning His Son. Which is in chapter 5, verse 6 to 12. And then in conclusion, we see that He. What those who have fellowship with God and His people know concerning God. That's, uh, that's the portion which runs from chapter 5, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 21. Where, for example, he in verse 20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's a true God and eternal life. <laughs> But I hope you have noticed how he repeats the theme of love again and again. You will notice that he uses eight arguments and gives three appeals to his uh, hearers. 
ilangu this is to show how important it is to walk in love to love one another to love god and his people Yes, I, as I close, let me run quickly through these arguments and exhortations or appeals for love. The first argument found in chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. He says, whoever is in the light and hate, whoever says is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Also the second argument in Chapter 3, verse 11 to 12. He says, Well, this is a message which we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Yes, arguing that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer, and you're not a Christian. If you, your life is marked by hatred for those who are believers and even non-believers, then you are not a believer. The third argument which we find in chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, which is like this, we know that we are passed out of death to life because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. Again, he repeats, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The fourth argument in chapter 3, verse 16, 17 reads, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Offense, my desire that these arguments will stir us up to love one another, to love God more. 
In chapter 3, which is the fifth argument, chapter 3, verse 23, fifth argument says, And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Then the sixth one in chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Which is similar to, to the next one, which is the seventh, found in chapter 4, verse 20 to 21, where he says, Even on, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he he who does not love his brother who, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is very clear. If, if we claim to love God, that will be seen through the way we love one another. She adds to this and says, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The eighth and last argument which he presents here in chapter 5 and verse 2. Where he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Yes, to the believers, the, the commandments of God are not burdensome. And the, even the one of loving one another should not be burdensome to, to us if we are believers. And he, he Three appeals which I pointed out. Uh, let me read the first one. In chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Yes, because he knows the way we know that it's very easy to say I love you. Yes, but it should not be only in talk that it be indeed. The second appeal which we find in chapter four and verse seven. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever 
loves is born of God and knows God. And the third and final appeal, we will find it in chapter 4 and verse 11 to 12. Where we read that, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected Indeed, beloved, let us love one another. For this will confirm that we have fellowship with God, the Father, and His Son. And it will also prove that we are truly having fellowship with one another. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you that we are able to say we love because you first, you first loved us. Oh Lord, that we acknowledge that on our own we are not able to obey your commandments and one of them being to love one another. Lord, we pray for enablement from above. We pray for sanctification so that we will be more and more like Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us so that we also lay down our lives for the brethren. Have mercy upon those who are still in their sins, who are still walking in darkness, who still hate people, who hate Christians and are murderers. Oh Lord, have mercy upon them and save them. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to know you more, to know you word, to abide in the word more, and to enjoy this fellowship with you and with one another.